Tune for Gray Matters here on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Coming up next. Commentary and Media Analysis Program. My name is Jim Dwyer, and I'll be your host this evening. A couple of holiday shows here in a row. Uh, Dick Whaley traveling to uh, be with family. And uh, I guess I'll begin by saying I'm sure we're all very grateful that uh, Dick has been able to rejoin the program so quickly after his uh, little health episode uh, this late this summer. Uh, one of uh, a handful of things to be indeed very thankful for at the end of a calendar year. You always tend to make lists. <clears throat> Mad Magazine has come out with their annual 20 dumbest people, events, and things of 2014. And even though uh, their publication of this issue uh, preceded uh, Dick Cheney's recent attempts to legitimize uh, cruelty, as an act of national policy, um, he made the list anyway for basically just that, um, coming in at number 19 with a handful of other uh, apologists for war crimes. But you can uh, enjoy and examine the uh, Mad Magazine 20 Dumbest uh, People, Events, and Things list all by yourself and get a few chuckles out of it as well. A magazine, of course, that was uh, foundational in uh, my own personal upbringing as someone born in 1963. I'm sure uh, a lot of folks out there will share my sentiments that before The Simpsons, Mad Magazine was basically uh, one of the only regular sources of satire uh, in an easy-to-consume form for younger readers, uh, but also still quite salient and scathing uh, with regards to uh, current events and... Uh, cultural manifestations of the American spectacle. Uh, indeed, it was Mad Magazine uh, who largely uh, explained Watergate to me as a uh, 11-year-old back in the day, as it was happening. So uh, kudos to Mad Magazine for their list. Well, at the very end of the show last week, uh, I made a quick comment about... Uh, 
and it has continued throughout the week, uh, the low, low fuel prices that we're all seeing, not just here locally, uh, but nationwide. And it's uh, it's been a shocker. In fact, it's uh, brought some of the stocks down for energy companies. Last week, as I was preparing for that particular program, scanning through the dial, you've always got to watch uh, a little bit of Fox News uh, just to, you know, smell what they're saying. Um, and uh, sure enough, uh, one of their uh, chattering nabobs was talking about, you see, these low fuel prices prove it. Fracking is worth all the risk. Uh, it's fracking that's lowering the fuel costs. That is far from true. Uh, it's not accurate in any sense of the word. In fact, low fuel prices render fracking uh, an inefficient way to try to make money from uh, pumping and scraping resources out of the ground. Fracking only pays off for investors and uh, corporate shareholders when prices are high and the costs are merited um, for that very, uh, not only monetarily costly, as we've mentioned many times here, but very costly in resources. Um, so fracking only works when oil is high in price. Um, it's going to be less profitable now that uh, oil prices are low. So why are the oil prices low? Um, if Fox News's theory is not correct, which of course it isn't, Fox News, by the way, should always come in quotes um, as like the name of uh, a fantasy uh, sort of a program. Uh, Knott's Landing fa Fantasy Island <laughs> could be the name of Fox News. I think uh, Fantasy Island seems a little more accurate than news. But um, what is the reason for these low, low fuel prices? Well, the Saudis are flooding the market with cheap petrol, petroleum, raw, pure, pure crude, uh, for a number of reasons. They've got rivals within the cartel, oil uh, producing, exporting countries cartel um, that they wish to undercut for various political reasons. Some of these are regional players like Iran. But probably, by and large, the number one reason that the uh, oil prices are so low is this is really driving uh, bamboo splinters under the fingernails of the Russian economy. And uh, this is another way to punish Putin by the powers of the West. And so while motorists here enjoy low fuel prices, which is nice for the holiday travel season, um, interestingly, uh, it's good to note, as I think it was the New York Times noted, that despite the decline in uh, gasoline costs, uh, use of public transport is growing. And of course, that is a trend that must continue. This country, bizarrely, uh, in the sort of infancy of the post-World War II auto boom, baby boom, road building boom, willy-nilly tore up existing streetcar lines uh, nationwide uh, because they're rendered obsolete. No one needs uh, this sort of transportation when we all have a car. But, of course, not everyone always had a car. And, you know, growing up here in Michigan, it was always uh, interesting to... You know, and kind of mind blower because in Michigan, everybody pretty much needs to drive. Uh, certainly, everybody I went to high school with learned how to drive. Here in Ann Arbor, teenagers often, you know, make it into their late 20s 
before they actually feel compelled to get a driver's license. They don't really feel they need one before then. And of course, you know, meeting people who grew up in New York City, they'd never needed a car. So I remember a particular road trip with some uh, WCBN colleagues to Washington, D.C., and uh, watching Akeem D. Reinhardt, now a uh, noted professor of American history, uh, figuring out how to pump gas. He'd never done it before. And uh, it's just part of growing up uh, here. So it's good to see that in Detroit's uh, refurbishment of Woodward Avenue, uh, there will be uh, some streetcar action. People mover didn't really work out quite so well. Its loop was so limited. But that's the future of uh, economically sound, uh, environmentally sound uh, transportation long term. But uh, short term, uh, enjoy the savings, I suppose. Uh, it's money that people will have available to spend uh, in other areas on other things. And since it's the holiday season, I'm sure that's welcomed by all. So, sorry, Fox News. Fracking has nada, zilch, to do with this pricing trend. Alas. Well, of course, it's been a very active and interesting, uh, troubling and sad uh, week in the news uh, with some strangely optimistic and unexpected developments, namely the beginning steps towards the normalization of relations between the United States and Cuba, which we'll talk about in just a moment, um, but also this bizarre uh, North Korean uh, hacking of Sony, the cancellation of the release of a basically a pretty stupid-looking comedy, um, and I'll have something about that in a moment, but I think probably the, the biggest story of the week uh, is this uh, murder of two New York City police officers uh, as they sat in their squad car. Uh, just the other day. Now, of course, there's been a series of uh, unpleasantness, uh, unpleasant events uh, throughout the calendar year of uh, tensions and conflict between police and African-American uh, citizens uh, in, you know, various cities and states. New York City, of course, uh, had uh, turmoil and protests when uh, grand jury found officers uh, not negligent in the chokehold death of uh, a guy who had been trying to sell loose cigarettes on the street. So we go from killer cops one week to cop killers, uh, you know, half a week later. Uh, revenge is, of course, never sweet, but it's so prevalent in entertainment media, uh, video games, television, lots and lots of movies are all about revenge stories. Um, Sometimes the message is actually allowed to sleep, uh, you know, sneak through uh, some of these entertainment media that uh, revenge doesn't work. That revenge is always going to blow up in your hands. That revenge is basically doomed to fail. And that is what much of literature is, of course, concerned with. Um, Hamlet, Shakespeare's, you know, probably considered to be his greatest play, is essentially, in my view... Uh, a play about the desirability of revenge, yet the futility of it. So it's a play about the impossibility of true vengeance. Uh, and, you know, there's a great passage in Beowulf uh, where uh, Grendel's mother, the monster's mother, comes back and kills the king's right-hand man. 
and the unknown poet writing in probably the 8th century observes, they'd traded deaths, Danes and monsters, and no one had won, both had lost. That's the situation wherever revenge occurs. Uh, no one wins, both lose. Um, however, it's easier to understand, while not condoning, certainly, uh, any act of violence, it's easier to understand an angry, psychologically unstable man shooting a police officer in a perceived and deeply flawed notion of some kind of retribution. I mean, the guy's nuts and unstable and he's got a gun, right? And he's angry, so I can understand how this happens. It's a little harder to understand how police officers can stand by while other police officers basically choke a dude to death. Um, that's troubling. And although everyone's going to be, you know, very deeply saddened by the uh, murder of these two men, uh, themselves a reflection of New York City Police Department's attempts to, you know, be... Uh, ethnically reflective of the communities they serve. We've got an Asian police officer and a Latino police officer, uh, American citizens uh, in this great experiment of our nation, uh, gunned down by uh, another minority member. Um, so what this makes me really wonder is when will police officers uh, and police departments, I guess, more importantly, rather than individual officers, when will police departments begin to come out in a unified way against guns? Uh, what makes the police officer's job so dangerous? What makes their job so difficult? The prevalence of guns. Uh, you know, teaching is a difficult job, too. It's sometimes a dangerous job. Sometimes adolescents are angry. Uh, some, you know, there's teachers have been shot in the line of work. Um but uh, I was really kind of shocked when there wasn't a greater outcry from teachers about the school shooting uh, of all the uh, little children uh, a couple of Christmases ago. Um, there should be some sort of nationwide response amongst uh, those workers who are most adversely affected by this perceived sanctity of the Second Amendment and the gun manufacturing lobbies right to distort the language of that amendment, which is very clear about the context within which arms are to be allowed. Um, but this uh, is blown to the wayside. Uh, in fact, the response to these uh, police killings of African Americans has led to higher numbers of gun purchases within the black communities. So more guns will make people feel more comfortable, but of course it makes it more likely that tempers overflow and that uh, incidents like this happen. Um, you know, the opportunity for this uh, lunatic to acquire a gun in New York City and actually announce to a couple of passers-by apparently, hey, watch what I'm going to do, um, as he, you know, proceeds to execution-style shoot these poor guys. Um, you know, it's the gun manufacturer's lobby that makes it that easy for that guy to do that. Um, their insistence on, uh, no, no, any kind of gun control is an infringement on all of our sacred right to own and possess firearms. Well, that's, uh, of course, uh, a whole lot of silliness and uh, bullshit. 
But uh, that is, of course, my personal opinion. I suspect that a number of listeners are likely to agree with me on that. I have no qualms with the ownership of guns for sportsmen's purposes and hunting. Uh, but uh, the growth towards uh, concealed carry and stuff like that and the uh, privileging of white fear is what I call it, is uh, being exploited by the gun manufacturer's lobby um, to an end that will uh, can't lead to anywhere good. Let's put it that way. Well, let's take a uh, momentary break here while I clear the deck and get uh, something ready for the next little comment here. So this uh, country has had an almost pathological fear of the government established in Cuba after the revolutionary overthrow of the military dictatorship of Batista, who, of course, had been supported by the United States government. Uh, Batista's Cuba was, of course, a playground for American elites and uh, a money grinder for uh, the Cosa Nostra, the Mafia, as we've all seen from all those great Godfather films. So when uh, Fidel Castro's revolution, Fidel Castro, by the way, once scouted by the New York Yankees as a potential pitcher for that team, he was an extremely talented baseball player as well as an articulate spokesman for his people. I think he trained as a lawyer and a very interesting historical figure. Um, the success of the Cuban Revolution, not just within Cuba itself, but its ability to endure such a crippling blockade by a superpower located only 90 miles off of its coast, has stuck in the craw of the American power structure for uh, so many years that its sort of persistence has seemed to me uh, a sort of uh, bizarre, infantile, pathological fear of uh, what is in reality a, a small thing. Um, it's remarkable the uh, intensity and the uh, rabid nature of the, um, especially uh, what's called the Cuban exile community, their hatred for everything about uh, the Cuban government. And of course, the CIA has <clears throat> been involved in numerous attempts to assassinate, destabilize, <clears throat> and otherwise uh, impose American will on the uh, rights of another sovereign nation. Uh, kind of like this interview film you know, shows an attempt to uh, explode the head of an international, uh, the leader of another country, uh, however ridiculous and, uh, you know, ruthless he may be. Uh, that's another story. But uh, this change in uh, potential for change in America's relationship with Cuba is uh, both astonishing and refreshing. 
But it might not be all good news uh, for either the Cuban people or for those uh, who have been sympathetic to the uh, uh, Cuban revolution and its attempts to make education and health care available for all of its people, uh, which, you know, they've done a pretty damn good job with there, uh, despite the limitations economically. But uh, Paul Craig Roberts has written a very short piece in today's Counterpunch that I'm going to share with you now. Uh, he's a former assistant secretary of the U.S. Treasury and uh, columnist for Business Week. Uh, he writes this, uh, regime change in Cuba by other means will American money defeat Castro's life work. Normalization of relations with Cuba is not the result of a diplomatic breakthrough or a change of heart on the part of Washington. Normalization is a result of U.S. corporations seeking profit opportunities in Cuba, such as developing broadband Internet markets there. Before the American left and the Cuban government find happiness in the normalization, they should consider that with normalization comes American money and a U.S. embassy. The American money will take over the Cuban economy. The embassy will be a home for CIA operatives to subvert the government. The embassy will provide a base from which the U.S. can establish NGOs, non-governmental organizations, whose gullible members can be called to the street, can be called to street protest at the right time, as in Kiev. And the embassy will make it possible for Washington to groom a new set, and I would interject a new sort, of political leader. In short, normalization of relations means regime change in Cuba. Soon, Cuba will be another of Washington's vassal states. Conservatives and Republicans, such as Peggy Noonan and Senator Marco Rubio, have made it clear that Castro is, quote, a bad man who turned an almost paradise into a floating prison, close quote, and that normalizing relations with Cuba will not, quote, grant the Castro regime legitimacy. Noonan forgets about Guantanamo, Washington's offshore torture prison in Cuba, where hundreds of innocent people have been held and tortured for a large part of their lives by the exceptional Americans. Uh, and that's a sort of a snide reference there to the dubious concept of American exceptionalism. Uh, the Cuban Revolution intended to free Cubans from foreign domination and from exploitation by foreign capitalists. Whatever the likelihood of success, a half-century of Washington's hostility has as much to do with Cuba's economic problems as communist ideology. The self-righteousness of Americans is extreme. Noonan is happy. American money is now going to defeat Castro's life's work. And if the money doesn't do it, the CIA probably will. The agency has long been waiting to avenge the Bay of Pigs, and normalization of relations brings the opportunity. Well, these are true facts and uh, worth remembering, but I still think that, uh, generally speaking, there are some interesting opportunities here, um, not the least of which is the opportunity, at least for American citizens, to go to Cuba. I'm sure many of us have enjoyed Cuban music uh, for a number of years. There's a, just a wealth of uh, great music from that island nation, uh, a total hybrid of uh, African and Indian, that is Native American stylings. Um, so perhaps there are some uh, 
good things in there as well. Uh, I refuse to see it as an all bad situation. Uh, it's not that America has grown up. Maybe it's just that it's woken up uh, with regards to the futility of that uh, embargo. Well, let's see here. It's uh, 6.54. We've got about six minutes left in the program. And I think I will uh, dive quickly into uh, a few words about the Sony film, The Interview, and the cancellation thereof. Uh, I suspect that this film will eventually be available in some format um, and will probably have more people interested in seeing it than otherwise would have been simply because of the incredible hype surrounding, uh, surrounding its cancellation. Now, I uh, have not seen all of Seth Rogen's films. I can't say that I'm a fan of his films. He was excellent in uh, Freaks and Geeks, you know, a great television show about uh, teenagers growing up in Michigan, which since I did exactly that, it, there's a real ring of truth in that program. Uh, but, you know, when he appears on the uh, television chat show, Seth Rogen seems like a very affable fellow, an intelligent young guy, certainly very talented and witty. Um Seems like a nice guy who might be fun to hang out with. Uh, but uh, this movie um, kind of goes off the tracks on its own. Now, regardless of whether these are North Korean uh, hackers who've worked their way into Sony's you know, network or whether, as has been reported, uh, it's in fact uh, Chinese computer hackers under the employ of North Korean agents um, who have perpetrated this work. It's surprising to me that the mighty Sony Corporation, who uh, own, God, how many, you know, what are their assets? How, how many billions or perhaps even trillions of dollars uh, do they have at their disposal? Uh, it's shocking to me that they have so quickly and readily folded up their tent on this one and saying, nope, nope, we're just not going to release it. Maybe, you know, wiser heads have prevailed. I think there's some problems with the very simple uh, premise-related aspects of the story. For example, the fact that it uh, depicts two journalists who are then recruited by the CIA to do a killing while they're interviewing a guy. Well, John Stewart from The Daily Show just had a film come out about a journalist who was imprisoned because the Iranian government think that he is uh, a spy because he was interviewed for a spot on The Daily Show, which is, of course, a comedy news show. And they, th you know, they were joking about being a spy on the TV show. So the Iranian government thinks, oh, you must really be a spy. Those weren't jokes. So there's always a suspicion that journalists are, in fact, covertly working for intelligence agencies. And there's a reason for that, because sometimes they are, you know, Graham Greene worked as a reporter, journalist, and as uh, an intelligence agent for British intelligence during World War II. He traveled the world, and he uh, shared information. Of course, if you know about Graham Greene, you know that his personal politics were left of center, and so uh, what kind of news he chose to pass on would, of course, have been interesting to analyze against his personal politics. But... Um, Okay, so that's one sort of a stumbling block with the, uh, the troubling aspect of the uh, interview as a film. But, of course, Charlie Chaplin made his uh, film against Adolf Hitler, The Great Dictator, uh, in a time where most of uh, Hollywood studios were afraid to denounce Hitler. 
Um, Chaplin said, no, this is, you know, prime material for comedy, and we've got to knock this guy down a few pegs. He stole my mustache. Uh, which is actually true. Douglas Fairbanks says, hey, man, that Hitler guy has taken your uh, mustache, Charlie. So uh, the great dictator is uh, not just a political and uh, comical uh, attack on a fascist dictator, but it's also a personal thing for, for Chaplin. It goes beyond the mustache, too. It uh, it's, was clear uh, even before the war that Hitler was uh, a very real, dangerous, criminal lunatic. But in Chaplin's film, The Great Dictator, they belittled and ridiculed the figure. They did not show his head being blown up. Now, there weren't a lot of, you know, gratuitous violent scenes in uh, Hollywood films back in the 40s. But there were some people who warned Chaplin, I don't know, this could be a potentially dangerous move to uh, openly ridicule Hitler. He's a powerful guy. The German Bund uh, was quite strong in America before the war. Uh, there might be some retribution. Well, United Artists did not fold. They went ahead with it. Uh, the South Park uh, film uh, roundly ridiculed Saddam Hussein. They didn't kill him. They made him uh, Satan's gay lover. So uh, that's better satire than blowing up a dude's head in a movie. So uh, regardless of who really hacked Sony, um, or if we'll ever see the interview, uh, I think Satire needs to be careful not to sort of veer into violent uh, fantasy, but to do the job of satire, which is to uh, remedy through ridicule. Uh, so we'll see what develops on this story, and I'm sure there's going to be more facts emerging in the weeks to come. Well, Christmas is, of course, this Thursday. Please drive safely out there. I know that uh, traffic lights are green and red and those are holiday colors. But on my way down here to do this very program tonight, I saw two cars run red lights. You know, just running through. Oh, it's just turned red. I'm just going to squeak through. Nobody will know. Uh, you, you can't do that, folks. Uh, you must stop at a red light. And I'm noticing more and more people doing this uh, the older I get. Yeah, it's everybody's in a hurry for the holidays or to get somewhere, but uh, what they're going, where they're going to get, isn't an accident. <clears throat> Just uh, if if I may, one comment sure. on your on your show where you described Hitler as a psychotic lunatic. Well, he not only was that, but he allowed his government to be filled with similar psychotic lunatics, which was probably his his worst move. Yeah. Uh, you know, other than other than allowing orders to come through, and they let these people, he let these people influence him tremendously in his term, which made it all the worse. So uh, it would, it's like the, I think that's where the wolf in the hen house came in, or mm -hmm. whatever. Yep. Uh, one <clears throat> party uh, allowing the other just to to fester and grow into this horrible idiom that was created in in Europe at the time, and right next to Uncle Joe over there in the east too. Between the two of them, bad apples. And uh, also, the other uh, Cuban product you forgot was the cigar made famous by Groucho Marx and Ernie Kovacs. Oh, that's right, yes. <laughs> A lot of people will be happy to get their hands on some of those. Well, stay tuned for Yazoo City Calling coming up next. That's Jerry Mack. He'll be your host for a an exploration of the origins of America's purest musical art form, the blues, coming up next here on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Go that one there. Yeah, too. Okay. Here we go.